I am just rejoicing in his holy presence this morning. I have spent the last three Sundays on a bus because I've been in a nation where you can't worship Jesus Christ. And I am so excited that I can be in church this morning and that we have the freedom, people, to gather in this place and to sing about our Savior Jesus Christ, whom we love. Praise his name. It is exciting for me to get to be here. I have missed being here. And yet I've been on a journey that's been an amazing journey that's taken me to the places of the world where the apostles walked. I've gotten to walk on those same streets where they have been and gotten to experience things that they may have experienced. And just this last week I was traveling and and traveling over from Turkey, which is in Asia, which today is a Muslim nation. That's where we weren't allowed to worship Jesus. And we traveled over and we made our way over to the European side and into Greece. And, And we landed in this little area in a town called Neapolis. And as we got there, I got to look up, and they had built this little monument here to, uh, to the Apostle Paul. And it's actually, they think, right about the same place where he would have gotten off the boat as he traveled over and made his way from Asia and into Europe as he followed the Macedonian call. And so if you'll bear with me just a little bit, I'd like to tell you about that trip, about that journey this week. Kids, will you go with me on the trip today? And we're going to go on this trip, and I I want to tell you a little bit about it. And the stories we're going to find are in Acts chapter 16, starting from there and moving onward. And it's in Acts chapter 16 that we find out why Paul ended up over there in Macedonia. You see, it says, during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And from Troas, we set out to sea and we sailed straight for Samothrace and the next day on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. So after I saw that place in Neapolis, we actually got on the old Ignatian Way, that road that led from Neapolis down to Philippi. And I made my way to Philippi, and this was early in the week, and now we were finally in Greece where we could worship our Jesus. And we got together, and we gathered down at the river outside of Philippi. We gathered at a place where the trees were and the water was running, and we were allowed to have communion and worship our Jesus there together. What is significant? What is significant about this place in Philippi? Well, let me read to you just a little bit further. This is from Acts chapter 16, verse 12. You see, Paul says and his companions, from there we traveled to Philippi. It was a Roman colony and the leading city of the district of Macedonia. We stayed there several days. But he says, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate to the river where I was this week, where we expected to find a place of prayer. And we sat down and we began to speak to the women who had gathered there. And one of those listening was a woman named Lydia. She was a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira who was a worshiper of God. 
She was a worshiper of God, but she didn't know Jesus. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. And she said, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. This woman, Lydia, she ended up starting a church in her own home. Lydia, the woman, the seller of purple, and right there along the riverside, there is a church dedicated to this lady, Lydia. And I took this picture from inside the church. But in the town of Philippi, today, you can walk the old streets of Philippi, and you can see what it looked like. Paul ended up writing a letter later to the Philippians, and this is, this is part of what it looks like. I don't know if you can see the paved road down in the front, but that's the ancient road that's been there for thousands of years. And in the background, you see the ruins of a church. It was a huge church. It was the third church that was built in the town of Philippi. It probably held six or 700 people. You see what began at a riverside with a group of ladies who heard the good news about Jesus Christ spread and the gospel spread. And eventually this town became a city that worshipped and served Jesus Christ. But Paul didn't really stay there very long. He had to keep moving on his journey, and I had to keep moving on my journey as well. So in Acts chapter 17, it says, And they, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of, Greek, of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. And you know what happened? Those people became believers, and they planted a church right there in Thessalonica. And we've got a book in the Bible that's written to the Thessalonians. And this is Thessalonica today. Actually, it is a bustling city, and you can go to downtown Thessalonica, and they have discovered the ancient city, and that's the ancient road and the ancient theater there in the city of Thessalonica, the very area where the Apostle Paul would have been walking. But he didn't just stay there. He continued his journeys. He went to many other cities, but one of the other cities that he ended up traveling to um, was Ephesus, Acts chapter 19. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, and he told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And there in the city of Ephesus, guess what happened? They planted a church, and the church grew. And these are the ruins of, of a great church that was once in Ephesus. In the year 351, they had one of the great ecumenical church council meetings met right there. All the leaders from all of Christianity gathered in that church as they discussed the future of Christianity. I mean, it became a place of followers of Jesus Christ. But the unusual part about this city was that the city of Ephesus had been at the center of civilization for a long time because they had a great temple in Ephesus, a temple to Artemis, the goddess of fertility. 
And the great temple of Artemis was built around the 5th, 6th century, 7th century B.C. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. People would travel from all over to see this temple. And they worshipped the goddess that was in there. And they thought, man, this is just incredible. And I mean, it was this incredible metropolitan city. But you have to know, a lot of the business of the city of Ephesus was based on this temple. And when Paul showed up, and he began to teach people about Jesus Christ, he caused a problem. So let's look at that just a minute and see what happened in Ephesus, chapter 19, verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. The way is how they called the the way of Christianity and what Paul was doing and what he was sharing there. You see, there was a silversmith, and his name was Demetrius, and he made silver shrines of Artemis which brought in no little business for the craftsmen. Do you get that? These guys are making little silver statues. They're making a lot of money. It's a great deal for all of them. So he called all the craftsmen together, along with the workmen and related trades, and he said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and, in practicality, the entire province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. Can you imagine? He said there is a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and they began to shout, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And soon the whole city was in an uproar and the people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and they rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some were shouting another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him, and he motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And the city clerk finally quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, Doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls and they can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in the legal assembly. And as it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. And after he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. Now, I just want you to imagine this was not some little thing that happened. He had stirred up the entire city of Ephesus. If we look at the next slide here a minute, and if you look really closely... This is a picture of the theater in Ephesus. It fills nearly the entire mountainside. It had 25,000 seats. This is the road in Ephesus, the marbled road you see walking down here. I just want you to imagine what it was like with the Apostle Paul. 
I mean he had so many people turning to Jesus Christ that he created a riot in a city that rushed that theater until they were screaming and yelling over some little goddess they thought had fallen from the sky. It's pretty amazing. That's just another view of the theater there. You can see some of the seats. But later on, John writes to the church in Ephesus. John went there as well, and he took Mary, Jesus' mother, with him. She actually dies there, and so does John. But John says this. This is about 30 years after Paul was there. He says, Church in Ephesus, I know your deeds, I know your hard work, I know your perseverance, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have perversed and have, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary, but I hold this against you. You have forgotten your first love. What happened to the church in Ephesus? This is the tombstone of the Apostle John. There in that city, they had so many reminders all around them, and yet, how did they forget their first love? What did they lose? That's not the only church. We, we hear about the church in Laodicea. We hear about it from the Apostle Paul, and he writes us this little blurb, I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those in Laodicea and for all those who have not met me personally. And then John writes to the church in Laodicea. He says, I know your deeds... You are neither hot nor cold, but I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Laodicea. You see, the disciples had gone there and they had preached in the synagogues like was their common in most places. And and this is interesting. It's a column that's left in the city of Laodicea. And you can see the, um, the menorah and then the cross on top. You see, the Jews were converting to... Christianity and believing in Jesus Christ. And and so this was a symbol of what was happening in the city of Laodicea. Now, it's interesting. Why would John talk to them about the water? And I learned a little bit about that on the way, too. Kids, you might find this interesting. But let's take a look at what was happening in Laodicea. You see, in Laodicea, they got water from two water sources. They came from two different mountains that were nearby. And one of the mountains was the one up on the top on the left-hand side. And I wrote hot next to it, even though it looks like it's snow. It's not snow. Actually, that is a mountain. It's a place called Heriopolis. In Heriopolis, there are warm springs and all this geological activity, and there is actually calcium and sulfur that's going down over the side of that mountain created by the hot pools, and that's what you're seeing, the calcification. And so the water that they would get from that mountain, from Heriopolis, was actually warm, hot water filled with a lot of minerals. People would go there to get mineral baths and that kind of stuff. And that water was run down the mountains, and it was sent over to Laodicea. And then the mountain on the right-hand side was where they also got water for Laodicea. And so the water was piped from both of these locations all the way to the city of Laodicea. And then in Laodicea... And this next slide here, you'll see, they had an interesting water tower. And it's a little bit hard to make that out. But on the left, what they actually had was a system of terracotta pipes that would come from the two mountains. It would pump up the water tower. There used to be a container on the top that would hold all the water. And then on the right, you can see a little bit of the pipes that are left over. The pipes would then be piped all over the city of Laodicea. And they were all held together in concrete in in, in this tower. Um, But here was the problem in Laodicea. 
The water came from one mountain that was nice and cold and from another mountain that was hot mineral water. And it was pumped together in the water tower in Laodicea. And sitting up there on top, the water became lukewarm and filled with minerals. And the water in Laodicea was not the best. And they knew exactly what it meant to be lukewarm and kind of nasty. What happened? What happened to all these places that I went? Because at the end of the day today, all I've done is show you pictures of piles of rocks. It's a bunch of ruins. Those churches are no longer alive today. As a matter of fact, some of those pictures came from Turkey, which today you can't have new churches or anything. You can't be serving Jesus Christ. How in the world did they go from being an area that was so in love with Jesus Christ to losing it all? Well, I think part of our clue is that the church in Ephesus lost its first love and that the people of Laodicea had become lukewarm. And as we're on this journey, I want to ask you a question. Where are we? If people were to look at us and our spiritual lives, if people were to come back and look for this church 30, 40 years from now, will it just be a pile of rocks? Or are we a living, breathing organism filled with the Holy Spirit? God is asking us, where are we going on this journey? What are we going to take with us? Now, just recently, I was at a conference where George Barna was speaking, and George Barna was talking about his newest survey that he's been doing for nearly 10 years where he's been studying the spiritual lives of people in America. He's been trying to figure out where are people in their spiritual journey? Where are they in this trip? Where are they going in this journey? And he's not been able to publish it yet, but he shared with us some of his research that day. And I want to share with you a little bit this morning about the spiritual journey, a spiritual journey that the people in those early churches must have been on. But we have to ask ourselves, what happened on their journey? How come I can only find a pile of rocks today? So I want to take you with me. I want to take you to the ten stops on the journey that George Barna has come up with. And I want you just to listen this morning and maybe think, where am I? Where do I fit in on this spiritual journey? You see, stop number one, George Barna says, is an ignorance of sin. And he says, today, one percent of Americans see themselves in that category. It means they have no clue that there is such a thing as sin. It doesn't bother them. It's no big deal. It's just Totally clueless. 1% of the people are sitting at bus stop number one. Now, there are those that have moved up to bus stop number two. And they have an awareness of sin. Yeah, I know that there is sin out there. I know there's probably something wrong with it. They have a little bit of a... I don't know. They're not too bothered bothered by it. They're kind of skeptical. But 16% of Americans are there. They realize there is sin. But bus stop number three, they have a level of concern. I'm a little concerned that there's sin out there. I think maybe there's a problem with it. They're trying to evaluate it. They're wondering how it affects their lives. 39% of Americans are sitting there at bus stop number three with simply a level of concern. There's a small group that's moved from bus stop number three to bus stop number four. Bus stop number four we call fire insurance. 
It means I have figured out that I have a level of concern about my sin, and I realize that if I don't deal with my sin problem, I might spend eternity in hell, so maybe I will just profess faith so that I can get the fire insurance, and that's going to be good enough. So 9% of Americans are sitting here at bus stop number four in their spiritual journey. Now, there are a number that have moved up to bus stop number five, 24%. It's a pretty good number. And 24% are at stop number five, and they are embracing the grace of God. They've asked Jesus into their heart and to their life. And and they've moved on from it just being fire insurance. And they're saying, maybe now I want to get involved in the life of a church. And so they're coming maybe on Sundays a couple times a month, getting a little bit involved, saying, this is good. I'm enjoying this Christian walk, and and, and I'm going to do this thing. And, And they're embracing grace. And this is where the largest number of Christians in America today are. They're right here. They are at bus stop number five. And we can say, great, that's a wonderful thing. But you know what? We are called to continue to move on the journey. And you see what happens is if you sit at bus stop number five for too long, you'll end up at bus stop number six. And after about 10 to 15 years of sitting in bus stop number five, you're going to come to a place of spiritual discontentment. Six percent of Americans find themselves here. Spiritual discontentment that says, after all these years of being busy in the church, is this all there is to it? Is this it? Is there not going to be anything more? And they become discontent. And here they go to find different solutions. The first solution is what we call a contextual trade-out. You know what that means? That's fancy terminology for the problem must be my church, so I'm going to go find another one. Spiritual discontent. The church has got to be the problem. And so what we do is we go from bus stop five, we go to another bus stop five, and we just go hang out there, and we call it the recycling of the saints. And we just hang around at bus stop five because we don't really want to go on to six or seven. There's also an entire group of people that simply move out of Christianity at this level. For you see, if they don't go deeper in their Christian walk, they'll finally just say, forget it. If this is it, I don't want anything else. And you know people like that. They have walked away. But you see, for us to continue in this spiritual journey, there's something more. But there's something more that not many people are moving on to. And that is stop number seven. (laughs) Pastor Carla, why would we want to go to stop number seven? It's called brokenness. And only 3% of Americans find themselves there. But brokenness is when you find yourself at a place where you realize, I am sick and tired of trying to be the person running this life all by myself. I'm sick and tired of fighting battles that go on and on and on. I'm tired of fighting the battles about my habits and the things that I'm involved in and and, and those kind of things. And you finally get to a place where you say, God, I'm so tired of trying to run this life myself. God, I want to go on to a deeper place with you. Break me so I can move on. And if you get beyond that place where you're just giving public lip service to Christ, where you allow him to break you, you will move on to step number eight or stop number eight. And here 
you will find healing. And you will find a healing for your heart and soul that you could never have imagined. An anointing with God's Holy Spirit that will come in and fill every part of your being and transform you in ways you never thought possible. Genuine growth happens here. But only 1% of us are there. And if you get past healing, you can move on to bus stop number nine, where you find that you are now profoundly in love with God. Oh, I love you, Jesus. But sadly, only one half of 1% of the population is getting there at getting to fall in love with God. Not in love with my church, in love with God. And after you have profoundly fallen in love with God, he's going to do something amazing in your heart and life, and he's going to take you to bus stop number 10, and you're going to have a profound love for others. And you will fall in love with our hurt and dying and broken world in a way you never thought possible. In our tradition, we've used language like words like holiness and entire sanctification. You see, in our tradition, where our church has come from, we have always believed that we needed to move on in the bus stops. We've always believed that we needed to go on to a deeper walk with Jesus Christ. And if all of Christianity sits around at bus stop number five, people were going to be a pile of rocks and nothing more. And we've got to shake ourselves loose. And we've got to move from our comfort zone and say, God, break me. Because our hope is in falling desperately in love with God and allowing him to change us and to transform us in ways we've never thought possible. Finally, Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus. So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts, having lost all sensitivity. They've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ in this way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I don't know where you are in your bus stops this morning. Pastor Edgar is going to come and lead us in a song here as we kind of wrap things up. But we're going to go into our prayer time this morning. And as always, our altars are open. And I know we have needs. If you need to come and pray for a special need of somebody in the church, somebody in your family, if you want to be praying for our country, our world, the craziness of what's happening in Egypt, Jane Hipschman's family is in Cairo as missionaries. We want to pray for them. But the altar is also open this morning. 
If you're finding yourself at a stop and God is calling you to move on to someplace further, maybe God is saying, come on. Move on to brokenness. Because in brokenness you will find healing and you will become everything he wants you to be. People, I don't want to be a heap of rocks. I want to be everything God wants me to be. And that's my hope and prayer for this church as well. So as we sing this morning, for whatever reason you would like to come down, the altar is open, and let's spend some time around the altar praying before our Father.